Let me just encourage you to take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and you know, it is hard to believe that this Saturday will be 20 years since the events of 9-11, and there is that big event that is going to be held up at Lawndale Baptist in Greensboro, you heard Parker talk about that, you've seen some announcements, I know that many from our choir, orchestra, music ministry will be participating in that. And it uh, should be a really, really um, well-attended event. And, you know, my, ho- my hope is it'll just be an encouragement to those who've served as first responders. Um, you know, those who, uh, we, we remember the memory of those who died on that day. But you think about just the, the turmoil in the world and the fact that we're a world, we live in a world that desperately, desperately needs the hope of the gospel. And so that's my prayer, moving into this 9-11 weekend is on this 20th anniversary that um, God would revive the hearts of his people, that he would use us to be salt, to be light, and that spiritual awakening would happen all across our country. And I'm convinced that that's really the only answer for our nation today. It's spiritual awakening and spiritual renewal. And so it was one of those moments on 9-11. Everybody, you know where you were. You remember what you were doing when you saw those planes fly. I was working at Home Depot in the West Asheville store. I was in the break room that morning. And we were watching it as it was unfolding. And I was watching the news, watched it live as the second plane hit the second tower and knew immediately that it was not an accident. And so all of us remember how we felt that day And so um, here we are 20 years later and the world is indeed a mess. But that's why a study of the book of Revelation I think is so very important for the church because I believe that we find confidence in the message of this last book of the Bible as it points all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our trust to the Lord Jesus. Well, we're in a section of the book of Revelation that deals with the seven churches and I have been dealing with the seven churches of Revelation on an individual basis. Um, I know that probably most sermons that you've heard from Revelation, I would imagine more often than not, have probably come from these first couple of chapters as far as the seven churches of Revelation are concerned. There is a message for the church today contained in each of these letters that are written by the Lord Jesus to the seven churches of Asia Minor seven literal churches, but also seven churches that are figurative, representative of the church in every generation, in every culture, uh, in every generation of, of the world. And so there is a major, major practical lesson that we can glean uh, from these letters to the seven churches. We've already looked at the first two churches, the church at Ephesus uh, and then the church at Smyrna, And tonight we're going to look at the third church that's mentioned there in the second chapter, uh, the church at Pergamum. Now, by way of introduction, one of the big buzzwords that we frequently hear in contemporary culture today is the word tolerance. Tolerance. Uh, Like many other words in our modern vocabulary, tolerance is one of those words that's been hijacked. It's been replaced with a new meaning that differs from what it has typically meant down through the years. Um, 
I read a book a few years ago by Don Carson, but the book was entitled The Intolerance of Tolerance. And in the book, he explained how this definition of the word tolerance has really changed over the last generation or so. He points out how in the Oxford English Dictionary, the first meaning of the verb tolerate is to endure, to sustain pain or hardship. A second meaning of this verb is to allow to exist or to be practiced without any interference, to permit. A third definition is to allow or to put up with. All right, also included in that list of definitions for tolerate uh, is this allowance of the existence of differing views, to recognize other people's right to have different beliefs or practices without an attempt to suppress those beliefs. And so far, so good. That's, that's generally been the traditional understanding of tolerate uh, down through the years. But the word tolerance is a word that has now been redefined. According to Merriam-Webster, the word tolerance is defined as willingness to accept feelings, habits, or beliefs that are different from your own. And you say, well, what's the big deal? Well, if you, if you listen, there's a subtle change in that definition. And D.A. Carson points this out. He says, because there's a massive difference in accepting the existence of differing views versus accepting those views as being legitimate. Listen to what he said. He said, the shift from accepting the existence of differing views to acceptance of different views, from recognizing other people's right to have different beliefs or practices, to accepting the differing views of other people, it's subtle in form but massive in substance. To accept that a different or opposing position exists and deserves the right to exist, that's one thing. But to accept the position itself means that one is no longer opposing it. He says the new tolerance suggests that actually accepting another's position means believing that position to be true or at least as true as your own. In other words, moral relativism, which rules the day, has resulted in a different definition for tolerance. Now the new tolerance means that I have to affirm you in your beliefs and confess that those beliefs are just as legitimate, just as true as my own. That's a big deal, isn't it? The old tolerance says, you have a right to your opinion. And historically, Christianity has always been tolerant in this, in this way. You have a right to your opinion. The new tolerance says, you are right in your opinion. And if you don't affirm someone as being right in their opinion, then you, my friend, well, you are intolerant. Or so goes the narrative in today's society. Now, folks, this is why a Christian man or a woman who believes the Bible is often labeled as intolerant when he or she refuses to condone an unbiblical idea or behavior and Dr. Carson makes the point that the sad reality is that this new contemporary tolerance is intrinsically 
intolerant, hence the title of his book. And it explains why virtually every idea or way of viewing life in the world is tolerated nowadays with the exception of the biblical worldview which makes an exclusive truth claim. And those who pat themselves on the back of being the most tolerant, ironically, are the most intolerant, especially as it relates to those who believe the Bible. Now, here's what I'm saying. Tolerance, according to its new definition, is not something that Jesus ever had in mind for his church. And this is specifically an issue that's being dealt with here with this third church that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Pergamum. A.W. Tozer said, blessed are they that tolerate everything, for they shall not be made accountable for anything. (laughs) And so here in this passage that we're going to look at, Jesus points out that the church at Pergamum had been tolerating ideas and behaviors in their midst that really needed to be addressed. And if the church in Ephesus was facing a crisis of motivation, and the church in Smyrna faced a crisis of affliction, the church in the city of Pergamum was facing a crisis of compromise. Compromise. Now, to be sure, there is a form of compromise that is healthy, okay? We don't split hairs over every single issue. In fact, relationships, there's a level of tolerance that we show, we give and take in relationships. You think about the marriage relationship. Uh, You've got to show some compromise, you know, meet me in the middle on quite a bit of issues in the marriage relationship. And really that's true pretty much for any relationship uh, as far as life is concerned. But the kind of compromise that I'm talking about is not the healthy kind of compromise, uh, dealing with relational issues and that kind of thing in the context of marriage or friendship, but I'm talking about the kind of compromise that's being addressed here with the church at Pergamum that shows up in a doctrinal form of compromise that really is a turning away from the truth to follow and embrace the ideas of the world. That's the kind of compromise that is an unhealthy compromise. And so the compromise then really that uh, surfaced in the city of uh, uh, Pergamum is a compromise that threatened to obscure the truth. All right, it threatened to obscure the truth. Now, I don't know why this thing's freezing up up here, but if you listen carefully, I'll follow along. You know, technology's a wonderful thing until it don't work. <clears throat> so the compromise that surfaced in the church there in Pergamum was an unhealthy form of doctrinal compromise that threatened to obscure the truth. And that's what Jesus is dealing with here. So let's read this passage beginning with verse number 12, Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. 
And so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now keep in mind that's the second time now in Revelation, in Revelation that the Nicolaitans have been referenced. It was also mentioned back up in verse 6 of chapter 2, uh, something that the church at Ephesus had stood firm against. But evidently there were some within the ranks at the church at Pergamum who had bought into the ideas that were being peddled by the Nicolaitans. And so verse 16, Jesus says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So the issue then here at Pergamum was an issue of compromise. They were facing a crisis of compromise. There was an incorrect belief that had led to an impure behavior among some. Which, by the way, belief always impacts behavior. Because if you say you believe something but it doesn't impact the way you behave, you really don't believe it. But whatever we believe will show up in the way that we behave. And so in Pergamum, there was incorrect belief, there was error that had crept in doctrinally, and this resulted in an impure behavior among some. And so the Lord of the church is holding them accountable, and he tells them that faithfulness to him demanded that they deal with the issue. So there are a few things about the church at Pergamum that I want you to pay close attention to, and I'll just turn this thing off, I guess, and not worry about it. Tim, you have any ideas, brother? All right. Number one, when all else fails, just beat the keys. Uh, The influence of the church had been successful, okay? Uh, The influence of the church had been successful. That's really the first thing that I want you to notice with me there in the first couple of verses. You'll notice that the letter begins much in the same way that uh, really the other letters begin following that same pattern, there's something that Jesus is actually revealing to the church concerning himself. He's reminding them of truth concerning himself, his character. And in this case, with Pergamum, he's reminding them that he's the one who holds the two-edged sword. Okay, again, that goes back to what was revealed about him back in the first chapter. Now, you'll know that the two-edged sword there, that is a picture of the word of God All throughout Scripture, the the Word of God is compared to being a two-edged sword. The writer of Hebrews says that the Word of God is sharp. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So who is it that wields the sword? Is the sword the sword of the preacher? I mean, I preach, I wave this thing around when I'm preaching, but is it the sword of the preacher? No, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the sword of the Lord. And as it's being declared, as it's being read or consumed in your life, it's the Lord of the church who takes the two-edged sword of his word and he goes to work in my life and your life. 
So it's important that he's reminding this church that had drifted into doctrinal compromise, he's reminding them of the source of their authority. You lose the word of God and the centrality of the word of God in the church, you won't have a church. And so that's why this is so very important that he's reminding them of the centrality of his own word. All right, so a a few things to consider here. Uh, Why they lived, to begin with, why they lived. Uh, Jesus is, again, he's identifying himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. It's two-edged because it cuts both ways. That is, it deals with the mind and it pierces the heart. God's word deals with us both on an intellectual level as well as an emotional level. Uh, you think about that. Uh, God's word wakes us up to objective reality. It speaks to the mind, appealing to our thinking. God's word is intended to frame the way that we think. It's intended to form the basis for our worldview. Every Christian needs to have a biblical worldview, a biblical way of processing life in God's word or, or God's world. And yet, at the same time, God's word deals with me on an emotional level. It speaks to my heart. It awakens feelings within me. Uh, It touches me with the message of the holiness of God, the love and the grace of God. It thereby activates the will. It inspires and provokes worship in my heart as a believer. It energizes my spirit. There's something about the word of God that gives life, right? Right? God used it, by the way, it was by means of the word that the world as we know it was spoken into existence. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Jesus is the word made flesh. So by reminding the church at Pergamum the truth of how he wields this two-edged sword, the Lord is showing them that he is ultimately the source of their life. That's why they were in existence as a church. Every New Testament church that is in existence, listen to me, it is in existence not by the sheer will of man, not by coincidence, but because it has been spoken into existence by the word of God himself. So that means it's not by sheer accident that Green Street has been a church here in this community for so many decades, so many years, over a century. And so the church lives and dies by the word of God. So it's not by accident that the church is in Pergamum, built upon the word. So that's why they lived, but then where they lived is the second thing. Thing ain't gonna work, is it? Oh well. Where did, the city of Pergamum? Pergamum was a Roman city. Uh, it was a Roman capital of the province of Asia. Uh, at the time of John's writing, it had a population of around a quarter million people. So it was a pretty well-to-do city. It was sixty miles to the north of Smyrna. It was a city of learning. It was a city of books. Um, just an interesting fact. Pergamum had one of the greatest libraries in the world, the second largest library in the ancient world, second only to the library at Alexandria, Egypt. The library in Pergamum had more than 200,000 volumes. 
So here's a city that has been known for its knowledge, its education. Uh, Even the name Pergamum was a development of the common word that was used for parchment. So writing, learning, uh, education, all of that was true of the city of Pergamum. But it was also a religious center in Asia Minor. Uh, It was a place of religious pluralism. Pergamum had more temples per capita than any other city there in the region. There were temples and there were religious sites dedicated to almost every god in the Greco-Roman pantheon. It also housed one of the earliest centers for the imperial cult. And we keep coming back to this in our study of Revelation where it was state practice, state-mandated religion at this particular time for everyone to visit a local temple in the city where they would offer a pinch of incense in the name of the emperor, worshiping the emperor, thereby proving their loyalty or allegiance to the empire. Now you could see how that would create a real issue for Christians in these cities who do not pledge their allegiance ultimately to the emperor, but Jesus is Lord. This is the confession of the church. So notice the Lord is saying there in verse 13, he says to these believers in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. These believers were literally living in the belly of the beast. It was a city where the devil himself set up headquarters. And there are a lot of scholars who think that this is a reference to the altar of Zeus that stood on a hillside overlooking the city. I wish that my computer was working because I've got a really cool picture of this that I wish I could show y'all tonight. But the altar of Zeus was there uh, on, on a hillside overlooking the city of Pergamum. It was 40 feet tall. And from a distance, it almost looked like a literal throne. Uh, The Pergamum altar is how it's known in antiquity. Perhaps this is what Jesus is referring to here when he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And there's an interesting note in connection with this. You go all the way back to 1878, there was an archaeological team working under the auspices of the Berlin Museum in Germany. Uh, They began excavating in and around the site of ancient Pergamum. And this archaeological team unearthed all of these historical finds. They found a beautiful hillside, terraced theater uh, there in ancient Pergamum. They found a temple to the goddess Athena. And most amazingly, in 1878, they found this altar of Zeus there on top of the hill overlooking the city, Satan's throne itself. And it was a remarkable find, uh, considered to be one of the most Uh, valuable artifacts from this particular period of ancient history. Now, here's what happened. The the, the archaeological team basically reassembled this Pergamum altar, the altar of Zeus, but they didn't reassemble it there in Pergamum. They took it and put it in the Museum of Berlin, in Berlin, Germany. And it's been there for nearly 143 years. I have a really cool picture of it that I wish I could show you, but it's just not going to work out. But the throne itself was richly ornamented with all of these mythological figures from Greek mythology. Uh, 
if you zoom in on it, you can see some really lewd pictures that would not be appropriate to show on the screen. But here's the thing. In the 1930s, in the 1940s, Satan's throne was only a stone's throw away from where Hitler and the Third Reich planned the extermination of the Jewish people in Germany and plunged the entire world into the Second World War. You think that's by coincidence? That Satan's throne was there in Berlin at the time. I don't think it's coincidence. So Jesus is saying, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You add to that the imperial power of Rome. This was something that went unchallenged. Rome demanded absolute loyalty to the empire. And yet these Christians refused to do that. And so in the Roman mind, they were guilty of sedition and treason. Roman authorities had no problem with them worshiping their own God just so long as they also recognized the supreme lordship of the emperor and included a visit to his local temple in their schedules. And those who refused to do that were subjected to cruelty. They were subjected to fear tactics. Mike Breen says it this way. He says, the Romans offered a way out. All believers needed to do was to do their duty as good citizens and burn incense to Caesar in his temple. No harm, no foul, right? I mean, what harm could really come from that? If they did this, they would be left alone in peace by those in power. They'd be left free to live their lives however they saw fit in as much as they just went along with the rest of society. So just a little compromise would have ensured a life free from pressure. And Jesus is saying, I, I know where y'all live. I know you live where Satan's throne is. He says there in verse 13, yet you hold fast to my name. So that's how they lived. Why they lived, where they lived, how they lived. They were living faithfully. They refused to budge on the issue of who Jesus is. They were willing to suffer for his sake in a difficult place. I mean, literally living in the shadow of Satan's throne there on the hillside of the city. And evidently one of them had even been martyred for his faith. His name is mentioned here as Antipas. Uh, tradition says that he was tortured to death by being roasted alive inside of a brass statue that was heated until it was glowing red. And so for such a stand, Jesus is commending the church at Pergamum here. He's affirming their faith. He's commending their strength of resolve to remain a witness for the gospel in a very difficult place. Pergamum had applied the pressure to the church, and yet the church had remained planted in its confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. However, there were some cracks that were beginning to show that would severely undermine the foundation of the church were they not addressed, which leads to a second point here. The integrity of the church was being threatened. Their influence, this is commended by the Lord, but their integrity is being threatened by a subtle form of compromise. Jesus says there in verse 14, I have a few things against you. 
In other words, when he's looking into the heart of the church, he found some things that met his approval. The fact that they had been standing firm in their faith, the fact that they had an influential witness, even suffering for the sake of Christ, they had been holding fast under pressure for the most part, but there were some things creeping in that concerned the Lord of the church. And so the integrity of the church was being threatened in at least two ways. First, it was being threatened through doctrinal compromise. Doctrinal compromise. You'll notice there Jesus says in verse 14, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. If you're familiar with Old Testament history, you know that this is a reference back to Numbers chapter 22 and the chapters that follow uh, where Balaam was a prophet for hire. And Balak, the king of Moab, uh, hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on the nation of Israel. But every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, he inadvertently blessed Israel because God wouldn't let him curse his people. So when that plan didn't work out, Balaam advised Balak to pay the women of Moab to seduce the men of Israel into immorality. If you can't beat them, join them. If you, oh, hello, my friend. He's going to get this thing working. Uh, if you can't curse them from without, why not try to corrupt them from within? So where Satan cannot destroy the church from the outside, listen to me. He tries to infiltrate the church on the inside. Which, by the way, don't you see this pattern kind of emerge in the book of Acts? Where external persecution you know, destroying the church doesn't really work. It only serves to get the church out of Jerusalem and put the church really ultimately to the ends of the earth. What does Satan do? Does he, does he, does he retreat? No, he regroups. And he changes tactics. And he tries to infiltrate the church from within and sow division and sow discord and sow false teaching. And the tares are sown among the wheat And so you see this in the book of Acts. You see this going on evidently in Pergamum. There are those in the church at Pergamum who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Give Nathaniel a round of applause for fixing my computer. (laughs) I'm telling you, he's Johnny on the spot. All right. There we go. Look at there. If you got the blank, you didn't, look at there. There's the city of Pergamum right there. You see the theater on the hillside? And right there is Satan's throne. The Pergamum altar housed in the museum at Berlin. Only just a few miles from where Hitler planned his atrocities. There's an artist rendering of what the ancient city of Pergamum would have looked like and the temples to the Greek gods the temple to the emperor and the throne of Satan itself, the altar of Zeus there on top of the hill overlooking the city. Imagine living in the shadow of that as a believer. Being persecuted as someone who really stood out. So the integrity is being threatened through doctrinal compromise and this is what's being referenced there with this teaching of Balaam. 
Because the women of Moab were worshipers of idols, they also seduced the Israelites into following false gods. And so what it ended up doing was creating division and confusion. And a lot of the men of Israel died because of Balaam's error and sin. And it's all there recorded in the book of Numbers. And so Jesus is warning the church at Pergamum not to fall into the same error. Peter says something similar as he warns the church against false prophets and false teaching in 2 Peter chapter 2, where he says that these false prophets have eyes full of adultery. They have an insatiable appetite for sin. They entice unsteady souls. That is, they seduce those who are not grounded in their faith. And oftentimes they appeal to the emotions. They appeal to the feelings of others. Peter says they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So here's the thing. The way of Balaam that's referenced here, uh, it separates belief from behavior. The way of Balaam is steeped in the gratification of the flesh. The way of Balaam operates by this philosophy. Whatever feels right must be right, so do it. After all, grace means that I'm forgiven, right? I can live any way that I please and claim the grace of God as my excuse. Which, by the way, the Apostle Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 6 when he says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. If that's your understanding, uh, you know, your approach to the gospel, you don't really understand the gospel in the first place. So you've got a group here in, in Pergamum who had bought into this subtle lie and they were leading the church to slowly compromise in its witness there to the city. So doctrinal compromise and then deficient confrontation. The integrity of the church was being threatened through a deficient confrontation. In fact, there was no confrontation taking place. The leadership of the church, the church itself should have been dealing with this error but they were allowing it to continue in their midst. And the Lord says in verse 15, so also you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, who were these? Well, early Christian writings said that the Nicolaitans were founders of this kind of libertine Gnosticism, closely related to this way of Balaam. But basically, they taught immorality and idolatry they misunderstood Paul's doctrine of freedom from the law. And the Nicolaitans more than likely were responsible for a teaching that said one could worship Caesar in the flesh and Christ in the spirit. The idea, they bought into the idea that ultimately the flesh was bad, the spirit was good, and so it didn't matter what you did in the flesh. And so when you went into the temple of of, of the emperor to offer a pinch of incense in the emperor's name. You could really be worshiping Christ in the spirit even though with your body you were conforming to the dictates of the culture around you. It really was inconsequential according to the Nicolaitans. Well, the Lord of the church has something totally different to say. So here you have these Nicolaitans, those in the way of Balaam. Uh, there's a group within the church at Pergamum. Uh, in order to avoid social embarrassment, they chose to assimilate worldly values and worldly practices and beliefs into the life of the church. 
Ephesus stood firm against this kind of thing, but Pergamum had compromised with this kind of thing. And those false ideas were beginning to spread like cancer throughout the body. They used the popular philosophy of the day, teaching that people could burn incense to the emperor in the body, but worship Christ in the spirit. Basically, here's what they said. There was nothing wrong in seeking peace and protection for themselves and their families if it could be achieved by doing something that didn't compromise their spiritual life. As long as the heart was given to Jesus, the spirit was God's, it didn't matter what they did with their body. And it was a subtle way that the enemy was trying to seduce the church into error. So now listen, imagine yourself in this situation. You've got these Christians in Pergamum. They're under pressure from all sides. They're being harassed. They're being persecuted. They're ostracized in society. Even one of their own had been tortured to death. And now you've got this subtle teaching from the Nicolaitans that lifted the pressure from one direction. And what these guys had to say sounded so very attractive. It seemed so reasonable. But the church shifted and fell into compromise because they were looking for a way out rather than looking for a way to stand. And the church always faces temptation to compromise with the world whenever we're under pressure. The world comes along and the world really wants to apply its squeeze to your life. Some of you, you've experienced this where you work, right? I mean, to just go along with everybody else. You know, you've experienced it in terms of your family where you've tried to articulate Christian truth and you've, you've tried to deal with ideas that you knew were not true in conversation and then, man, the conversation went south in a hurry and you were all of a sudden accused of being intolerant, unloving, old-fashioned, out of step, on the wrong side of history. I mean, you know how this goes. And in such an environment, we face the real temptation and the pressure to just remain silent or to capitulate our views, don't we? But the consequences of compromise will always be serious. They'll always be dire. I heard a story about a goose that flew south with his flock for the winter. And one year, the goose happened to notice a farm where some other geese were down in the barnyard and they were not flying south and as this goose was flying he looked down he thought to himself you know those geese down there in that barnyard they look so happy they look so healthy so he flew down he joined those geese in the barnyard eating what they were eating well he happened to just stay there with those geese for the entire winter when suddenly he heard the honking in the distance and he saw that his flock they were flying north again He struggled to catch up, but somehow he had put on too much weight during the winter. Easy thing to do. He couldn't fly, so he just honked to the flock and said, I'll catch up with you next time. And then the goose went back to eating. Never even noticed the next time that his flock passed overhead. Just busy eating what the other barnyard geese were eating. And in fact, he never saw his flock again because all those barnyard geese were being fattened up for the oven. 
Folks, compromise with the world may seem reasonable at the time, but it only leads to decline, spiritual decline, and ultimately destruction and death. And the church has always had the most impact in the world when the church was the most unlike the world. In terms of her doctrine, in terms of her fidelity, her faithfulness, her commitment to God and his word, doesn't mean that we need to be arrogant with the truth, but we do need to be bold in our stand upon the truth. So, one final thing here. Notice the issues that had to be addressed in the church. Here's what Jesus is saying. You've been faithful in so many ways, yet there's this subtle form of compromise that's beginning to creep in, and the Lord of the church tells the church at Pergamum, you need to deal with the issue. You need to repent. And notice he says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So tolerating and accepting every idea and behavior, this is something commended by our culture. It may be a virtue in terms of a pluralistic society, but it's always condemned by the Lord Jesus. Compromise with the culture will be the death knell of a congregation. And oftentimes, it's always done out of an attempt to want to reach people. Have you ever noticed that? Well, we just soften our understanding of what the Bible teaches about sexuality. In such a culture as ours, we'll just soften our teaching on what the Bible says about marriage. We won't mention what the Bible really says about marriage. And then before you know it, you'll be giving yourself over to ideas that are completely contrary to the truth of Scripture and it won't be long before you've lost the church entirely. And then what moves in to what used to house a pretty healthy church, you'll have a form of religion where the power thereof has been denied. And Sunday morning will be nothing more than people getting together for the simple sake of being social to hear someone read some poem. And that's usually the way it often goes with the liberal church. No need for the Bible. You understand what I'm saying? This, this kind of thing has happened so, so very much. So a ship is designed to be in the water, and that's a good thing. But you know what? When the water is in the ship, that's a bad thing. And God intends for his church to be in the world, but he does not intend for the world's ideas and the world's false doctrines to infiltrate the church and for his word to be set aside. And so that's why Jesus is saying here, uh, he's given some instructions to the church at Pergamum. He says you need to repent. Turn around. Change your mind. That's what that means there. Let the word of God, the sword of the spirit, let this form your thinking and your convictions. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Don't be conformed to this world, but, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold and tell you what to believe about this and what to believe about that. Let the word of God saturate your mind, your heart, your life, and form your understanding of life in God's world. But then notice this invitation that these believers are given. They're instructed to repent. They needed to surrender to the Lord, which, by the way, compromise involves surrender to pressure. 
What I find interesting is that steadfastness in the face of pressure, it also involves surrender, just surrender in the opposite direction. So the issue is, who am I going to surrender to? Am I going to capitulate to the world? Am I going to surrender to the world? Or am I going to surrender my life to the Lord and to God, to Christ? So what's this invitation? Well, verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And then... Jesus promises that the church would be given several special objects which illustrate intimacy with God. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna that takes us back to the time of the Exodus where God satisfied the hunger of his people while they were there in the wilderness. John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So this is a reference then to the satisfying presence of Jesus Christ in times of pressure. Did you know that there is a closeness that you can experience with God when you're, when you're facing the heat of the furnace? When the culture around you wants to put the squeeze on your life and you don't know which end is up? Did you know that when you draw close to God, there's a, there's a special intimacy that you can experience with the Lord of the church in seasons of affliction? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego learned a little something about that in the fiery furnace, didn't they? They got thrown into a furnace for their faith, but they discovered that there was a fourth man in the fire there with them all along. And he was there with them, and he was there strengthening them. And listen, they emerged from that furnace, and they didn't even smell like smoke. And the Lord says, I've got some hidden manna, and I'll satisfy your hunger in difficult seasons. And then there's a white stone that they're given. And on that white stone, there's a new name that's been written. Now, what's the significance of that? This is the mark of special favor. In John's day, white stones were often used as tickets to royal banquets. So the idea is, even though they were being excluded from the world, they were being included in the family of God. Even though the world around you put pressure on you and, and kicks you out of its way of doing things and, and ostracizes you, God says, why don't you just, why don't you just scrooch up next to me? Why don't you just pull yourself up to my table of grace? Let me give you this white stone upon which I've written a new name. I've given you an identity and you are safe and you are secure in me. You are mine, purchased by the blood of my own son. It doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter what the world does to you. You belong to me and I'm keeping you as the apple of mine eye. That's what God says to his people. And folks, this is to be our confidence in tough times, isn't it? Man. So, so here's the thing. What do we do as the people of God when the world around us puts us under pressure? Do we compromise what we believe in order to protect ourselves from harm? Oh, that's a really applicable question, isn't it? Do I compromise what I believe in order to protect myself from harm? Because that's the real crux of the issue, more than likely, that the believers at Pergamum were dealing with. Or do I believe that I can entrust my soul and my body to one who is sovereign and one who is omnipotent and one in whom I've placed my faith and my trust? And I can live a reasonable life 
but I don't have to get caught up in the spirit of fear that's engulfed the world around me. And there is a spirit of fear, my friend, that has engulfed our world. But God's people, God says, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Don't be terrified. Don't be dismayed. Would you stand with me as we pray tonight? First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober-minded, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by your brethren throughout the world. And Peter says, after you've suffered a little, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we praise you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we know that the church, the, the world around us, the culture around us wants to put the squeeze on us. The enemy opposes what the church represents and tries to attack the church from all sides. But greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. God, would you give us strength to stand and Lord, to point people to the hope that we have in Jesus? And I think about our children and I think about our students and how impressionable they are and how they're being exposed to ideas through a variety of mediums, Lord, whether it be social media, whether it be their peer groups. And God, may we not, may we, may we not waste the opportunity we have while they're young, Lord, to frame up their minds with a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, because the world is going to throw so much stuff their way. That's why student ministry is so important. That's why children's ministry is so important. That's why family ministry is so important. The home, oh Lord, it's an incubator for disciples. God, give Christian moms and dads wisdom, courage, and strength, and Desire, as we walk with you, Lord, in the midst of a difficult society, a corrupt culture, oh, may we radiate the light of Christ. So, Lord, thank you for your word. Take these truths and seal them up in our hearts and lives tonight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said together, amen, amen and amen. God bless you, folks. Go have a good night.